my name's Paul Dare. Um, I'm a proud child of God and a, also a proud man that comes from Port Merrimara country. Now, I'm not a Mohinia man whose country I am broadcasting is from today, so we're a Mohinia country. I'm reminded today, because I am on another nation's land, how different we relate compared to the average Anglo-Saxon background or white person. And welcome to country is really important because I'm, I'm actually welcoming to another person's country and it comes back to how an Indigenous person thinks and Pacific Islanders are the same and a few others are the same. So the way you think is I relate, therefore I am. And if you think about it, so Indigenous people need community. And it's a bit like a church, actually. Church needs community as well. And the church is, is kind of more like a microcosm of what it means to be an Indigenous community, where everyone looks after each other, where everybody takes care of each other. And that you put that against the white philosophy, I think, therefore I am, and that's a very individual way of looking at life. I think, therefore I am. And it comes down to you view life as... I'm a, the, the philosopher in the 15th century who came up with that. He was wondering... It, did he exist? Am I actually here? And he came to the conclusion, I think, therefore I am. And that's sort of the white mantra I've been ever since then. But when you think about Indigenous people, it's I relate, therefore I am. So there is a big, big difference in the way we view the world. And that's why, that is why it's so hard to get an Indigenous community out of poverty because of the relationship. So you can't just get one person out of poverty, you actually have to get the whole community out of poverty. Otherwise, they all just go back to helping their aunts and uncles and family and nothing ever happens, it doesn't improve. So you've got to get a whole, a whole community out at once and that's why it's so difficult to actually, for Indigenous people to get help or more to the point, why it's so difficult for white programs to work in an Aboriginal community. So this morning, um, I was thinking about this morning and I had a run through this week with Anne and Dan and, and Laurie and it was really amazing. It's the first time I've been here for a while and um, I was really nervous and I made a real hash of the run through. So I hope today goes better than that. Um, but I was reminded of something and, and the, it was Joshua 1.5, which I've got here. Joshua 1.5 says, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you think about that, that's such a wonderful, comforting verse, isn't it? I will never leave you or forsake you. And for me, it gives me great comfort. It allows me to have a simple faith. The more I know about God, the more simple my faith is. And, and it comes back to, I firmly believe God's got this. God's got my life under control. Well, kind of under control. God has a perfect plan for me. I don't always listen. Let's put it that way. So, but God has got it. And, you know, you, you, can't, you can't go against God's timing in your life. No matter how hard you try, if you look back on life, you think of the things where God's told you to do something, you've gone the other way. It didn't work out. You go back to God's plan all the time. So God's got it. And I was actually thinking about my life and... Um, I, there's some things that have happened in my life which make my faith even simpler, if that's possible. 
So a few things have happened, and this isn't all of them, which is unfortunate, really. So when I was four, I had to go away from my family for a month because I was so poor in health. I had to go and live with my auntie for a month. So that's a, I can remember that. And then at five, I went hunting tiger snakes with my brother. Who does that? Now, I mean, God was looking after us. God has a plan. We actually got one. It was really amazing. We didn't die, though, so that was good. Um, at five, we used to live next to a railway line, railway line and the railway carriages in the siding. So what we used to do for entertainment was push the carriages up to one end of the siding and let them run down to the other. But then for more excitement, we used to lay between the rails and let them run over the top of us. Once again, you know, at five years old, who does things like that? God has a plan. At six, I got hit in the head with a dog spike, which is a nail about 12 inches long. My brother and me were fighting, which is very unusual. And um, it hit me just above the eye here. And uh, I remember going to mum. Mum was quite cross because she was, had a meeting on or she was doing something that day and had to take me to hospital. And on the way there, I, I, the bleeding stopped enough so you could see inside your head. It was really fascinating. Don't recommend it, though. At 11, my sister, she pushed me over and killed the nerves in the top of my mouth and I lost all my teeth. At 13, my appendix burst. And so I spent, a, I spent one term off hospital. I had two operations that year. At 14, I got hit by a car while bike riding. At 14, I fell off the back of a car and got knocked unconscious. At 28, I nearly lost both my kids because we were going down a whitewater rapid and they got hold, they, I was holding on to them and they got away from me, but it was only because God that I actually managed to grab a hold of them and they were safe. At 36, I lost my spleen when I fell through a roof. Don't do that, that's not advisable either. And from the age of 42, I've looked back on it. I've actually spent a, probably a month every year since 42 in hospital. At 50, my wife went home due to cancer. So she's now with the Lord, which is good. At 52, I had a tumour removed from my pituitary gland on, you know, in the back of your brain there. At 54, I actually got bitten by a tiger snake. At 56, I lost my grandchild to SIDS. And now I'm just about to have a shoulder replacement. So my life has been, oh, well, it's been what it's been. But, you know, God's got it. And that's the, that's the thing I always look back on. If you can live through all that, you figure, what else can go wrong? I didn't say that aloud. What else can go wrong? But God has got it. And so this morning I just feel like God has got this. And I just want to explain to you that I have this real passion for what I'm talking about this morning. And it might not come out the way I want to come out. But I'm just trusting God will actually let you hear what he wants you to hear, that you have it. So, what is NADOC? NADOC stands for National Aborigines and Islander Day Observance Committee. So, it, it, it has its origins back in the 1920s. And it was brought in to actually increase the awareness of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians' plight and what they stand for and what they do in society. And so that's why we celebrate it. We celebrate it so that everyone else can learn a bit more about our history. And one of the questions I always get asked is, what does it mean to be on country? Uncle Rev, Reverend Ron Williams, 1940-2003, wrote about like this. I think we Aboriginal fellows know 
more about what the Bible is actually talking about in spiritual dimension, we are more like the ancient Hebrew people than the white fellas are. Another thing is God was already here before the white fellas came. We heard the Creator speaking to us. And, and, I, and so when you're on country, you get this peace about yourself. You just It's like trying to explain what it means to say the Spirit lives within you. Have you ever tried to explain that? You've got a peace, yeah? You've got, um, you just feel peaceful. You just feel like everything's going to be okay. That's what it's like with the Holy Spirit living in you. But you actually try and explain that to somebody who doesn't know. And the words, you just really, really struggle with the words. And it's the same as being on country. You just feel this peace. You feel like everything's going to be okay. You feel like you're just rooted in the ground and it's just a feeling like that. But I can't explain it to you, but it's similar to trying to explaining the peace that you feel with the Holy Spirit. So we're talking this morning about um, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, which is talking about when someone who is less than you came knocking at your door, what did you do? And you might say, well, Aboriginal people aren't the least. They've got everything we've got. You know, they should know. But uh, there's a few things I want you to think about this morning. All right, I want you to turn to someone next to you and tell them whether you knew your grandfather. So did you know your grandfather? Just talk to somebody next to you and say, yes, I knew your grandfather or I know someone who knew your grandfather. All right. Now, turn to the person next to you and tell them whether you knew your great-grandfather or great-grandmother or great-grandparents. Now, for us who are a little bit older, maybe not, but my children's, my, well, I'm a grandparent now, so my grandchildren actually know their great-grandfather. So it's, it's happened to these as we get older. So my dad's great-grandfather, right? My dad's great-grandfather. He was alive during the Black Wars as a child, baby, in 1830. So you think about when we talk about how does this affect you, if you can remember a great-grandfather, it's only one, one generation behind that that actually lived during the Black Wars, which actually lived in the 1820s. So the effect isn't like it's eons ago or, you know, it, it was before my time. Some people can actually remember it. The last generation could actually remember people who were living in that era. So it's not like it happened a long time ago. And you think about all the things that happened then, the massacres and everything, and you go, it's not, no one's blaming the people today for that. But that history affects how you view life, whether you want to admit it or not. But here's the next one. Who here has heard of Albert Namajira? Right, he was born in 1902, died in 1959, which isn't that long ago, is it? So he grew up in a missionary place, Hermansburg, which is just outside Alice Springs. And he was actually awarded Australian citizenship before the referendum of 1967, in 1957. So here's a guy that's family's been living for generations, shall we say, on country, 
suddenly in 1957, after he was famous, he said, all right, you can be considered an Australian. So that isn't that long ago, is it? 1957. So in 1957, he went then to the pub to buy his family some beer. You know, whether you like buying beer or not, that's, that's not, that's not the point of the story. But he actually went to jail because his family wasn't recognised as Australian citizens at that time. That is only 70 years ago. He went to jail and he actually died shortly after. Not only that, one of the greatest landscape painters in Australia's history wasn't allowed to buy a house in Alice Springs because he was black. You know, he had all this money. He met the Queen and he still wasn't allowed to buy a house. And so when you talk about history, it's not that long ago. Now, the next one is, who here is over 50 or knows somebody over 50? <laughs> right. Maybe one or two of us. Did you know in 1971, Sherberg in Queensland, so Sherberg in Queensland is about two hours northwest of Brisbane. In 1971, Indigenous people were still being removed to that community. In that community, they had a white side of the community and a black side of the community. In that community, they used to turn, the white side used to turn the power off at night of the black side. And then they'd turn it back on in the morning. In that community, all the boys and girls were put in dormitories. In that community, they had to line up and get rations each day. And that's only 50 years ago. So when we talk about why, we, why are we talking about NAIDOC Week and why are we talking about The Voice and why are we talking about all those things, it's because it's recent history. So in 1971, they still had segregated living, still was, their lives were controlled. Then in, then in, yeah, so after World War II, there were 546 documented removals made to that Sherberg. So people were still being taken off. You know, we talk about the stolen generation. It happened in our lifetime. And you actually stop and think about it, you know, you hear stolen generation, you hear things, you, oh no, that's not us, we couldn't do that as a country, could we? But it did, it happened in our lifetime. The good news is, in 1986, they were actually allowed to have that control their own destiny. 1986, less than 40 years ago, they were actually given control of their lives back. Could you imagine like, if you're especially, uh, you know, 60, and you were 20 at the time, the first 20 years of your life, you had no control over it. And then suddenly you were got, they were not only given control, the, the government just pulled out. So you'd been controlled in your life for 20 years, and then all of a sudden, everyone left, and you're just left sitting there going, well, what do I do now? And so it's taken another 40 years to even look like having some semblance of order and control back at that place. I went there for a mission trip in 19, a while ago, and, um, and during that time, I, there was two things that stood out to me that shows you how different life can be. The first one is 
They used to bring in portable housing because the houses used to get burnt if they weren't finished. So they had to bring in portable housing. You go, well, they're burning their own houses. Why are they doing that? Once again, it's because they've just come out of total control into relative freedom and it's just this whole, how do we adjust? And the other thing I did notice was there was a funeral there when we were there and there were eight divvy vans turned up with prisoners. There were police dogs and police everywhere because of the incarceration rate of Indigenous people in Australia. There were, it was like watching a prison scene. It was just, they had dogs on the hill looking for runners in case they tried to escape. And it actually made me stop and think, what are we doing as a society to help these people? So the prison population in Australia as of the 30th of June last year, 32% of all prisoners were Indigenous but there's only 3.2% of the population that are Indigenous, total population. So they represent nearly a third of prisoners for 3% of the population. There has to be something wrong with the system. There has to be. And we've had closing the gap and all those things, but there's still something wrong with the system. In Tasmania, it's not quite so bad. 23% of all prisoners are Indigenous, which represent 5% of the population. And you think, why is that so? And it's because in the past we've tried cultural assimilation and the cultural assimilation is you'll do it our way or it's not happening. Life expectancy today is still eight years less on average for an Indigenous person as compared to a non-Indigenous person. So you look back and you go, why is this happening? What's, what's caused this? Why are, we, why are we at this point in time? And the good thing is we can actually talk about it now. We can talk about it, but the question is, if these are the least of these, in, that, in where we read the sheep and the goats, if these are the least of these people, what are we going to do about it? But just, just to let you know that it's not all doom and gloom. There were some, there were some bright lights in our history. David Gibson, whose son was William Gibson, the founder of the Baptist Church in Tasmania, he actually knew, he realised there was an issue. And what he used to do was, this is during the war, the, the cultural wars, what he used to do was, he used to actually kill and slaughter a sheep and a bullock occasionally and leave it hanging up so the Indigenous people could come and get that rather than kill kill his flock. So he actually sacrificed a little bit to gain a lot. And he was one of the few people that actually improved relationships. And then there was a Reverend James Blakey, the second pastor of Hobart Baptist. He was acutely aware of what was happening. He was acutely aware of what was happening with Western Australian Aborigines at this particular point in time. And he actually went out and he wrote letters you know, and it mightn't sound much, but he wrote letters and he supported the people who were actually on the front lines. So there were people with heart back then that knew what was happening was wrong. So the question is, what is the voice? We've all heard, what, you know, we've all heard stuff on the voice and people have made it out to be something which I think it's not. So sometime this year you'll be asked one question which you get to answer yes or no to. 
if you're over 18 and registered to vote, that is. And the, the thing is, a proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. That's what you're voting for, yes or no on that. Now, if you vote yes, this is what it means. They're adding a new section to Chapter 9 of the um, Constitution and they're putting a new section in that, 129. And it says, In recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first people of Australia, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Well, that's, that's, that's okay. And this voice may make representations to Parliament and Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. May make representations. That's all. Nothing else. And the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have the power to make laws in respect to matters relating to the voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. In other words, the federal government has the powers to change the composition of the voice if we voted in. The federal government have the power to not listen to the advice or to listen to the advice. It's up to them. So it is just that. This is just providing advice. It is not going to be a third chamber. It would be a non-legally blinding advisory body that represents First Nations people. That's it. And you might say, what's the big deal? Why do we need it? And it comes back to the least of these. If you think about trade unions, they have the ACTU, which represents and lobbies at a high level. There's other people, there's the industry council that represent and lobby at a high level. There's, there's interest groups that represent and lobby federal government at a high level. The issue is Indigenous people as a rule struggle to get that representation heard and this is just a way of making that representation heard. That's all it is. And then, of course we want more, we don't want rent, we Oh, I don't think we want rent. Um, it's, not, it's not about rent or anything like that. We want to get to the point where we can have treaty, where we can have truth and reconciliation. That's where we want to get to. So, truth and reconciliation... How many people know about the massacres in, of Aboriginals in Tasmania now? How many people know there was 27 or 28 massacres recorded? Like, who's been to Buckland? Has anyone been to Buckland lately? There was a massacre there. Who knew that? There was a massacre between Levendale and Oatlands. Who knew that? There's, um, what is it, Dismal Cliffs? Dismal Cliffs, I think, is, if I've got the name right. They call it Dismal Cliffs because they ran an Aboriginal tribe off the cliff and killed them all. So, and you go, that happened when my great-great-grandfather was alive. That happened. It's not that long ago. So, you just, I just encourage you from this to actually go and learn just a little bit more about Indigenous culture and history and why the voice is so important. Why you should consider the, the, 
the nations as a whole as the least of these. Now, for those who haven't seen the Black Wars or the Frontier Wars on SBS, I suggest you watch episode two. So it'll take 40 minutes of your life, 40 minutes of your life to understand what I'm talking about. And if you watch that with an open mind, an open heart, I'm sure that God will convict you of something. Because you can't watch that and not be affected. Another thing you can do is to go and visit the museum in Hobart. They've got an excellent exhibition on at the moment. It is a really, really thoughtful and well-placed expedition exhibition which has history to it, which points out the history to it. Or if all else fails, just go sit on a hill and just imagine Indigenous people roaming through that area, caring for country, seeing what they seen. Ask God to help you see what they seen. And if you're really into reading, this book here, which I know Dan has told you before, Tasmanian Aborigines by Lyndall Ryan, is the best book ever to actually read regarding the history. And if you like war stories, this one here by Tonga Longareta is the story of an Oyster Bay chief, one from my country, and how the Black Wars were fought. It's a really, really good read. So when it comes to looking after the least of these, you go, you know, it's not just in Indigenous people. It's not just Christians. If you actually look back on your life, has anyone ever helped you do something over your life, in your life? Has anyone actually came and given you a hand, helped lift you out of something you were going through? In those moments, you were the least and you had someone there to help you. So you have this opportunity and God's actually asking you to have this opportunity to be helpful to the least of these. And that's what I really encourage you to do is just, just talk to God about it, talk to people about it, but don't approach it with fear. Years ago, we had cultural Christianity which means when the missionaries come, they try to assimilate them into their culture. And it just didn't work. It just didn't work in the end. We are now much more aware of what it means to be the difference between cultural assimilation and sharing God's love. And in this church, we probably do it better than I've seen most of it because we have a Nepalese community which come to church here. But we allow them to do it their way. We allow them to be who they are and they worship God differently than we would. Does, does it mean they love God any less? No. Does it mean they... It doesn't mean any of that. But we allow them to be the culture they want, celebrating God the way they want. And we celebrate the God... The, our God, the God yeah. We celebrate God the way we want. And that's okay. That's what Christianity is about. It's not meant to be cultural subversion. It's not meant to be changing cultures. It's meant to be allowing people to worship God the way they want to worship God. So when it, with the voice, you hear all these things and all these reasons. We heard the Palawakani words this morning, Yapalingana, hello, welcome. And you go, how hard is it 
to actually go acknowledge that? Do you still call it Mount Wellington or do you call it Kanyani? It's got to the point now where most people go Kanyani and they go, you know exactly what it is. But our history still allows us to call it Mount Wellington. But it's the little things that make such a big difference to people's lives. There's the little things that actually make people go, they really do care. They really are showing love. They really are, in fact, being to the least of these. So I just encourage you to just, during NAIDOC week, just to think about the least of these and what you can do to help it. And let me finish with a cultural interpretation of Psalm 23 by Uncle Rev Ron Williams. He, he was 1940 to 2003. And this relates to his interpretation of Christianity. He loved God, no doubt about it. And in here, you'll hear the words Father Emu. And Father Emu is how their dreamtime story of creation started. So it's not meant to be there to take offence or to compare. It's just their interpretation of it. So this is Psalm 23. See if you can hear the words of the way we read it. Father Emu. Oh, no. My big fella boss up in the sky is like Father Emu. He will always look after me and take me to green grass and lead me to where water holes are full and fresh all the time. He, lead me, he leads me away from the thick scrub and helps me keep safe from the hunters, the dingoes and the eagles. At night time when I'm very lonely and sad, I will not be afraid for my father covers me with the, his feathers like a father emu. His spear and his shield will always protect me. My big fella boss always gives me good feed in the middle of my enemies. In hot times, he makes me sit down in cool shade and rest. He gives me plenty of love and care all of my life through. Then I will live with my big fella boss like a father emu that cares for his chicks in good country, full of peace and safety forevermore and evermore. Now, that is spoken an inter interpretation from an Indigenous pastor. And you go, wow, that is really powerful. But you can also take offence to it because of the words. So it's your choice. Do we do the cultural Christianity thing or do we do the Christian thing and accept that people worship God differently but it's the same God and they have the same love. And God loves them just the same. So when it comes to the voice, when it comes to First Nations people, I just pray that you will be there standing alongside, helping them out as the least of these. Thank you.